It's uh, great to see you all here. As Tim said, my name's Paul. I'm one of the leaders here this morning. Um, I'm going to be continuing our series in Hebrew 6. I'm going to do a quick um, kind of health warning first. I never 100% know where God's leading me or what I'm going to say, but I've got something that I might be saying or doing later, and some of you might be upset and offended by it, and I'm going to apologize in advance, but I'm going to probably go for it anyway, if it upsets you too. So, Right, okay, so we're going to be looking now at he- Hebrews 6 today. Book of Hebrews, we've been studying that. Um, I have to say, it is probably my favorite book of the Bible. Um, I really like Hebrews. In some ways, um, and some of you may know, I'm, I'm a bit of a a theologian, I'm not a great theologian or anything, but but some of the kind of doctrinal stuff and the rules and things matter to me more than to some people who've got more kind of grace and everything. And and so actually in some ways the book of Hebrews is a potentially a bit of a difficult book actually because I really like it, so I really need it to stay in the Bible. But actually when um, the canon of the New New Testament was uh, put together, the standard test was that the books and letters had to be written by somebody who knew Jesus or who was an apostle who Jesus appeared to. Now, originally, it was felt that the book of Hebrews was written by Paul, which means it gets in with all the other letters he wrote. But now, having looked at it, people are now less sure. Um, they don't know if it's written by... Because he doesn't follow Paul's style. So... Some people think it was written by Apollos, some people think it was written by Luke, but, but I'm here to say that probably is not a problem for any of you. I might be the only person who potentially in this church has a problem with it at all. And I'm going to say I don't have a problem with that because I am convinced that it is the inspired work of the Holy Spirit and on that stand alone it gets in. And I'm convinced it's the inspired work of the Holy Spirit because Jesus said in John 15 verse 26, I will send you the advocate, the spirit of truth. He will come to you from the Father and he will testify all about me. And then in John 16, he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but he will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. And the book of Hebrews is a book about Jesus. And I, I want to thank Tim for putting forward this series. I want to thank you, Tim, for calling this Jesus is Greater. Because that is what the book of Hebrews says. The book of Hebrews is written almost certainly to Jewish people living in Rome. I get that again, because it's not like the other letters. It doesn't specifically say who it's written to or who it's written by. But, but it's almost certainly written because it's, a lot of it is about Judaism. And so it's written to people who have a basis in Judaism. And what it says is, you know all that stuff that you know. You know how back in the Old Testament, sometimes great angels appeared to people. And an angel appeared to Abraham. And angels appeared at the Battle of Jericho. And angels appeared. And they were like big and they were strong and they were amazing. And that's great, isn't it? Angels are great. But Jesus is greater. You know you know, Abraham, Abraham was fantastic. Abraham's the father of faith. Abraham's a man of faith. Abraham's fantastic. But Jesus is greater. You know, all the, the system of the, the sacrifices and the temple and all those things, they're great, aren't they? Yeah, but Jesus is greater. 
you know how all the laws and Moses and everything that, that God gave, that's great. Moses was great, but Jesus is greater. And that's the message of the book of Hebrews about how the new covenant supersedes the old covenant. It, it goes beyond it, it increases it, it fulfills it because it's a better covenant. Because it's an everlasting covenant. It's a permanent covenant. It's not just to do with having a piece of land. It's to do with having a piece of heaven. And that is the consistent message of the book of Hebrews. Is this, this is, you know what? That stuff is good. But this is better. And so we're going to look at the passage. I'm actually going to start, um, as I'm only supposed to be doing Hebrews 6. We're going to start in Hebrews 5. Um, verse 11. So, the writer says, um, there is much more we would like to say to you about this, but it's difficult to explain, especially because you are spiritually dull and you don't seem to listen. You've been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. But instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You're like babies who need milk and can't eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from dead works and placing your faith in God. You don't need further instructions about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And so God willing, we will move forward to further understanding. For it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance by rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. When the ground soaks up the falling rain and bears a good crop for the farmer, it has God's blessing. But if a field bears thorns and thistles, it is useless. The farmer will soon condemn that field and burn it. Dear friends, even though we are talking this way, we really don't believe it applies to you. We are confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers as you still do. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that you hope that what you hope for will come true then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. 
we who have run for our very lives to God have every reason to grab the promised hope with both hands and never let go. We have seen this as a sure and a steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that goes into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone. Running on ahead of us and has taken up his permanent position as a high priest for us in the order of Melchizedek. So, it's clear that certainly at the start of this passage, the writer is getting a bit fed up with the people he's writing to. What he says is, come on guys, we've gone over the same stuff again and again and again, and I've told you about it, and yet you want me to tell you again, you know? And you're still like spiritual babies, you're still wanting to get the basic stuff, um, you're still wanting to hear about these things, and you're not ready to be moving on. Actually, you know, you've heard it enough times. You should be ready to be teaching other people about these things, and you should be ready to deal with some more complicated stuff, you know? <coughs> I think I've been told, I've never worked in the NHS myself, but I'm told there is a principle that you see one, do one, teach one. That you, you're shown how to do a procedure, you do it with somebody there who's more experienced than you, who can make sure you're getting it right. And as soon as you're getting it right, you teach one. Then you pass that on to somebody else. That's how you really learn what to do. Because actually, if, you're, if you know that very soon you're going to be doing it for real, you pay really good attention. And if after that you know you're going to have to tell someone else how to do it for real, you pay even more attention. And, you know, the writer is talking to people saying, look, you should be teachers by now. We've told you this stuff. You shouldn't be needing to receive the basic stuff again. You should be getting ready to tell other people. And, you know, most of you here are, are really mature Christians. Some of you are a lot more mature in the faith than I am. And I believe that, that, that you know, that you are ready for this. But, you know, if we... I want to see this church get bigger. And I'm very happy for anybody to join this church. But really, what I would love to see is not people who've been Christians for 40 or 50 years and have just got a bit fed up with the church they're going to and got a bit bored and come here. What I would love to see is people who have never set foot in a church before who don't know much at all about Jesus and the story of the gospel coming in because they're friends with you guys, because you've been talking to them, because they're curious and they see our sign up outside and think there's a church and you know, just something today, today I need to go to a church, any church, this happens and, and, and I want to see new believers who are going to receive this stuff and get really excited because they've never heard it before. Um, and as this church gets bigger, we're going to need more people to do more stuff if the church grows. <coughs> and that's going to include some of you leading life groups. That's going to need some of you leading just looking groups. That's going to need some more people doing things like the the tea and toast or the coffee and chat on Curly Moor, just to meet with people, to get to know people, to, br 
bring people in, to make them our friends, so that they can receive the good news. And that means that you guys need to know what the good news is, because it may well be that actually those people aren't going to turn up on a Sunday morning and start asking the questions on a Sunday morning. Their first questions are going to be on Tuesday morning or on a Saturday afternoon or on a Friday night or somewhere, or when you're at work with them on a Wednesday or something. So you need to know this stuff. And I'm confident that most of you do know this stuff. But, you know, but this is the, the point that the writer is making, that... You know, you need to know this stuff, and you need to be passing it on, and you need to be living it out and doing it. And <coughs> you don't need to just be going back over the <laughs> same stuff again. I think there's a sense as well that actually, um, so much of what you hear in contemporary Western Christianity is about the what God can do for me, and 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 the the very that God loves you. God loves you with a passion that we c- that you cannot understand, and God wants to bless you because He loves you and you are His child. But so much of contemporary Christian Western Christianity is about how God can make me feel better. But actually, you know, there's a world of people out there who need to hear the message of what God can do for them. And there's a word of world of people out there who need to actually be challenged by saying, actually, you know, God is bigger than you are, and God exists, and God is real. And God has standards, and God has set the rules. Not, not that we're telling people about rules they have to live by. It's not about living by rules, but it's about the fact that he is God, and you are not, and we are not. And we need, and I feel there's a sense that the writer to the the Hebrews is saying, look guys, all you want to hear is about the good news about how you've been set free from your sins. But actually, you know, I want you to be telling other people that moving on from that, about how you can grow, about how you can become mature, about how you can do the more complicated. Not just, it's a, you've got to be giving out as well as receiving. It's not just about coming straight up. It's about giving out. But one of the things that he talks about is repenting the fundamental importance of repenting from dead works. And, you know, repentance is not something that is <coughs> commonly preached on in some, of the cir- in some circles. You know, repentance is about challenging people that what you're doing is wrong and you need to change it. And there are three... and particularly talks about repenting from dead works, and that's one of the main things I want to talk about this morning. And there's kind of three aspects of that. But first of all, I want to do an illustration. And Tim, can I borrow you? Sorry. I <laughs> you're not going to get wet. I promise you you're not going to get wet. But this is the bit that I think most of you are going to remember, possibly for weeks or months or years to come. Right. Here's a glass of water. That glass of water represents... Um, represents your life, a normal life. And I've got some, some sugar, which represents good stuff that you can do, being kind to people. I can see some worried faces here. Yeah. There's some sugar. And this represents good stuff that you can do, being kind to people, being generous, being friendly, being thoughtful. So I'm going to put some, some, some good works in there, some sugar. 
hot a day as I hoped it was going to be to do this, but it's quite, it's quite a hot day, it's, it's quite sort of humid, so, you know, that would be reasonably good to drink, a nice glass of water like that, uh-huh. and some sugar, makes it taste nicer, doesn't it? Uh-huh. What if I said that before the service I went out and stuck this stick in dog mud, and I stirred it with that? Anyone fancy drinking it now? No, no. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm glad that even our way, I'm, okay, I'll be honest, I didn't, it's a clean stick, but, but, but say I had, you would, it wouldn't matter how much sugar I put in that glass now, would it? It wouldn't matter how, much, how nice I made it taste, I could put coffee in it or something, so you wouldn't taste anything, I was going to, but you would not drink it, if you knew it was contaminated, and that's the problem with all our good works. Yeah, that's the problem. That everything we do is contaminated by the fact that it's us that do it. You know, we are sinful people. We are tainted by the original sin of Adam. We are tainted by our own sin. And sin is repugnant and repulsive to our holy God. Your sin, my sin, is more disgusting and hateful to God than drinking water that's been contaminated with dog pee. It is more, God hates it more and is more disgusted. And just as sin would none of us would drink that contaminated water, God cannot abide being in the presence of sin. And cannot receive anything that is tainted by sin. So our dead works are dead works because they are contaminated. They are touched by death. And that is the best things we can do. Are still dead works. <coughs> and our dead works as well are dead because they cannot bring life. Noth- we can never earn our way into heaven. We can never earn our way into God's good books because everything we do is contaminated. And we can, the the danger is that it is so easy for us to think that we can do good things and if we do enough good things that God will be happy enough with us. And that's, and even as Christians, we can, we can know the truth of the gospel, but still think that actually it's really down to us to do the right things, and that if we don't, then God will reject us and and just and still rely on ourselves. The one, the only way that we can ever achieve anything that will make us righteous with God is to receive the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection as our one and our only hope. Only he, his blood, his death can decontaminate us so that we are acceptable to a holy and perfect God. And we, we need to rely solely on Christ because if 
you are relying, if you do not place your trust in Christ, then your very best works are only achieving for you a slightly more comfortable place in hell. And there are no good places there. Because I don't know, I don't know what hell is like. But I do know what humans are like, and it's going to be full of humans. And I know what God does to help and preserve us, to keep us, to, I know what goodness is like. And, and I know a bit about what it looks like when you haven't got goodness. And you know, when you look at the descriptions of how wonderful heaven's going to be, Hell is going to be separated from that. So if all the good stuff's gone that way, then all the bad stuff's gone that way. And you look at, if you look at people, I mean, I just, uh, you know, I hear about these people who are humanists, and I know humanists think that we're crazy, wacky, dangerous people. And they can point out all the terrible things that Christians have done over the time, and most most people's right, but how anybody can look at humanity and sit back and say, humans are basically decent, good people, and we can put our trust in him. How you could even look at the the history of the last hundred years or so, and the terrible things that just in that period that people have done to each other, you know. If you want to see a taste of what hell might start to look a little bit like when humans are left to their own devices, you know. Look at all the look at all the war graves over in Flanders from the First World War. Go to Cambodia and look at the, the killing fields where just skulls beyond number are piled up by someone who believed in humanism, who believed that you should take God out of it. Look at what Stalin did when he took God out of the equation. Go to Auschwitz and see what it looks like when humans decide to dispose of other humans on an industrial basis. Or perhaps all of that's a little bit kind of grim for you and you fancy a nice holiday in Tuscany. And if you go on a in Tuscany, very often you'll be taken to the beautiful town of San Gimignano, which I've been to myself. It's a beautiful medieval town. And in one of the back streets, there's a museum of crime that you can go into. And there you will see what the best, the most refined of medieval, of, of, of Renaissance minds, the great that the minds that gave birth to the, the beautiful architecture and the paintings and the ingenuity of Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci and all those kind of people. And you'll see what happens when those beautiful minds are put to how to make a human body better in the Museum of Criminology and Torture. Ingenuity is incredible, but it's not very pleasant. That is humanity. And that is, and if you take all that is evil about humanity, take all that is good out, and all you're left with all that's evil in humanity, that's a picture of what part of hell will look like. But then you've got the devil with all his ingenuity thrown in on top as well. So, 
judgment. You do not want to go there. And that's why the next bit of the passage is so scary for me as a Christian. Because the writer here said, it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who are once enlightened. And he's talking about people who have been in churches, have been in places like this. He says they experienced the good things of heaven. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of age to come. These are people who've heard the message of God. These are people who have seen the Holy Spirit at work. Maybe they've had the Holy Spirit work through them or on them. Heard prophecies, seen healings, maybe even been healed or done these people. And he then walked away from God and said, yeah, I've seen the best of what it can be. And actually, I don't, actually, I think I've changed my mind. I'm not sure. I really believe it anymore. And they walk away. And the Bible says these people are impossible to bring back to repentance. That's a really scary thought for me. Because, you know, God willing, I hope I'm not that person. But, you know, I've seen and heard all the things it says that these people have seen and heard, and they've still walked away. These people, because if you've seen the best of what God can do, and then you think, yeah, nah, actually, sounds too much like hard work. And then you walk away. What what is going to ever tempt you to come back if you've seen the best and you've rejected it? And that's why the the writer says that those who are, they're like people who who are personally nailing Jesus back onto the cross. <laughs> and they are humiliating Jesus in public by walking away. You know, there's um there are various groups now. There's a there's a hashtag name called the Exvangelicals. These are people usually um they're fairly young people, teens, twenties, who've grown up in churches, good evangelical churches, and who've seen and known the good things of God, but who, for whatever reason, so, and some of them, because the churches they've grown up in, unfortunately, have not treated them well, who have churches maybe that haven't been honoring the word of God, and these people have decided, have now broken away, and there's a whole movement of these people who are saying, actually, we are actively rejecting the gospel. We are actively stepping away. We're, we're ex-evangelicals. We've We've been, we were evangelicals, but now we're, we've rejected it all. We think it's all fake, it's all false. And I fear these are the kind of people that the writer is talking about. And he casts this frightening picture. He says, you know, if you've got a good field and it grows good crops when the rain comes on it, then the farmer's happy with it and he blesses it. But if that crop throws up thorns and thistles, if you put your torch to it, burns it all and it's gone but then it gets a bit more encouraging a bit more positive he says dear friends even though we are talking this way we really don't believe it applies to you and I want to say thank you for being here this morning and it encourages me that you are here this morning it's sad that there are people we would like to be here this morning who from various reasons through health or other things going on are not here great that you this morning have taken the time and the trouble 
to get up on a Sunday morning to get dressed and to get here and get here on time and to sit and to listen to me and to praise God. That shows me that you care about this church, that you care about the body of Christ generally, that you care about God and that you want to honour him and worship him and learn from him. And that is a very positive thing. (coughs) It doesn't earn you your salvation, but it encourages me to think that you're on the right side at the moment. That's really positive. So I want to thank you for coming. It would be really disappointing to have come up with this horrible illustration and to have nobody to share it with. God put it on my heart like five or six weeks ago. I've been carrying this for five or six weeks. And, and whenever I've come to think or pray about this sermon, all I come back to is that one illustration. So really largely I came to you this morning with just that. Um, but, you know, <coughs> but the writer says, we are, we are confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. You know, salvation is a fantastic gift in itself. To be saved, to be taken away from hell and all the terrible things that that enrolls. And to be given a a hope and a promise that you're going to be removed from that. That is the best gift you could ever possibly have. But you know, God is even more wonderful than that. He's such a great father that he doesn't just rescue you from hell. He brings blessings as well. The writer says, God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you've worked for him, how you've shown your love for him by caring for other believers as you still do. Our great desire is that you'll keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to be certain that what you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Because, you know, the the danger is we can get complacent. We can hear these things and we get complacent. But if you keep on loving other people, you know, if the world is a, is a difficult and complicated place. People are difficult and complicated. Therefore, if you are interacting with people, you are coming up with situations every day that are different from the day before. And if you are constantly coming with a spirit of God's love towards people and you're having to love people, then you are constantly working at that and life is constantly interesting and is not going to get dull because people are not dull. And sometimes loving people is hard. But Jesus says, love one another. This is how the world will know that you are my disciples because you love one another. And love can be difficult because people are difficult. You know, I, I love my sister, but I wouldn't want to spend too much time with We are talking to you. We, we are as difficult, as different as you, as you could ever imagine. Me and my sister, you know, definitely all, all one set of genes on one way, all the, the other way. Certainly in terms of personality and everything. But and you know, I love her very much. I want the best for her, but I can cope with her for an hour or two at a time. But beyond that, she drives me crazy. And I expect probably I drive her a bit crazy as well, though probably less so. Not because I'm a better person, but because that was complicated. But um, <coughs> maybe she's more tolerant of me than I am of her. Or something. Yeah. 
But, you know, loving, you know, you can love people, but actually find them very difficult. And actually that's, that's the challenge of love. That's actually when you know you love someone. When someone is being difficult and you're, and you're putting up with them. You know, in any, in any relationship with your friends or your family or your spouse or your children or your parents, you can love them very much. Sometimes they do things that really, really anger us. But actually, you put up with them doing it because you love them. And if it was somebody else's kid, you'd just want to smack them on the head. Or, <laughs> or, you know, or if it's somebody else's parents, then you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't let them talk to you like that. Or you would just, like, walk out of the room and leave them. But with your parents, maybe you help them and things like that. But, you know. So, yeah, so loving, loving other difficult but it keeps it keeps life interesting if you keep loving people but th- and that is what we're told to do is to to love one another even when people are are being difficult and that's how we the church is marked out um, and then finally it says that we who we I uh, this is and this I, I actually took from the message translation um, it says, we who have run for our very lives to God have every reason to grab hold of the promised hope with both hands and never let go. We have this as a sure and a steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone, running on ahead of us and taken up his permanent post as high priest for us in the order of Melchizedek. So, if we keep hold of Jesus, Jesus already gone ahead, and he's already gone behind the curtain. And you know, um, if you've been here in church any length of time, you know, when we talk about the curtain, we talk about the veil that stood in the temple or in the tabernacle and separated the main bit, the, or the, the, the holy bit, where the normal priests would go from the holy of holies from the very presence of God himself, the place where God himself personally dwelt on earth in the Old Testament. And when Jesus died, that the curtain split and was torn in two, symbolizing the access we have. And the writer here talks about we have a hope inside the curtain. And what is our hope? Our hope is for the new garden city to come, the new Jerusalem that will appear at the end of the end of Revelation. There is this beautiful picture of this vast city descending out of heaven and landing on earth. And you know, the tabernacle in the Old Testament, when when God gave the plans to Moses, was a fairly small area because it only needed to accommodate one person, really, most of the um, and then he gives a vision to Ezekiel later on of a bigger, more expanded thing for the nation of Israel. A much bigger tabernacle with a much bigger holy of holies that could have accommodated maybe a hundred people. But then in Revelation, we get a picture. And the thing with the, tabern- the, the holy of holies was it was cubic. It was exactly the same long and back and then at the end of Revelation, we get a picture of another perfect cube that appears, which has the very presence of God in it. Just like the Holy of Holies was the place where God himself personally resided in this 
this cube made of curtains. But the revelation we hear of a cube that's a city, a cubic city, so vast that you could put it down and it would cover, if you put it over the center of Europe, it would pretty much cover most of continental Europe. That is the city of the hope that we are called to. That is where Jesus has gone before us. And it's a glorious city. It's a city so big that it has a river running through it. As I say, it's vast, and you could accommodate tens or hundreds of thousands of people in it. And it is this perfect cube to symbolize it as the presence of God. And it says that it, it, there is no sun or no moon in it, because it requires no light, because God is its light. And there's no temple in it anymore, because the temple, temple worship has been pushed away because in the city God is ever present and that is the hope that we are called to and our security is that we know that Jesus has gone ahead of us and Jesus resides in that city it is the city of God and of the Lamb and if we hold on to Jesus with the, and he holds on to us because it's more about his strength holding on to us than us holding on to him because we have failed and we'll let go some of the time. But if we have laid all our hope on Jesus and on nothing else, then he secures for us a place in that perfect city to come. There's a reason purified by his presence. In conclusion, if you're here this morning and you've been putting your hope in yourself, if you've been putting your hope in what you do and not in what Jesus has done, then you need to realize that all your works, all your best things are tainted and polluted. But if you admit your filth, if you are willing to give up all that hope you've put in everything you do and put all your hope in Jesus and Jesus alone and follow him wherever he leads you, then he will take your filth and you will be totally cleansed and your spiritual ugliness will be turned into dazzling beauty. And if you are here this morning and you have done that, you have placed your faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone, then that has happened. Your filth, your contamination has been washed away by his blood and replaced by the beauty of his purity hand back now to Tim to uh, lead us in some further worship and thank you Tim for stepping in and doing this with the worship. I'm going to be at the back with some other people um, if you, if anything I've said this morning or anything that's come out from the worship or the prophetic words or anything this morning has really spoken to you, I and some of the others are going to be at the back and if you want to get some prayer we'd love to pray with you